Welcome to the eighth episode of VSML 2022 Recaps from Reality TV Warriors. My name is Michael Harmstone, and joining me as always is the Canadian who has drawn the Time for a Nap card after every single recording we've done this season, Logan Saunders. <laughs> Good evening. It's a fun reference to the fact we do this quite late at night for you. Yes, it's 20 minutes before midnight. But in Phuket, that's, uh, that means the night is just getting started. <laughs> yeah, not, I... Uh, I had a very late set of nights last week, culminating in, what time did I get back to the hotel on Saturday night? About half one, I think. The security guard at the hotel was not best pleased with me on Saturday night. Why not? Doesn't he have to stay there, regardless of what time it is? He does, but like I, I went down to Folkestone to go see friends, including a mutual friend of, friend of the podcast, Justin, last week, and... I went out on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights to see them in various iterations. But on Thursday night, I got back maybe half 12-ish, and he got a face like slap task because he had to open the door for me. And then Friday, the door was still open by the time I got back, which is a similar time. And then I went round to Jez, Justin's friend's house, on Saturday night, and it was just after half one that I got back. And there was like a doorbell you had to ring to um, to get them to let you in. And I rang it. And he didn't come to the door. So I rang it again, and he still didn't come to the door. So I thought, well, it's half one. I don't want to sleep outside. What am I going to do? So I rang the hotel reception number. And as he came to the uh, reception to pick it up, I sort of waved my key card at him and said, can you let me in, please? And as he got to the door, he said, you need to ring the doorbell. I said, I did. Twice. And said, all right. It mustn't be working then. And he was really, really pissy with me. (laughs) <laughs> it's like, dude, that's your job. <laughs> yeah, like he's has to be awake regardless. It doesn't matter if there's ten people ringing the doorbell or zero. What's he doing? Just singing the theme song to Charles in Charge? I, he was away from the reception in in some capacity, but he can't have been far away because you know he answered that phone very quickly. <laughs> oh, maybe he was expecting a really important phone call, and he's like, oh. Uh, it's just a hotel guest. It's not the pizza delivery guy. Yeah, maybe. But um, after we mentioned the storms last week, um, I thought, yes, I'm away. I'll miss the storms. And then on Friday, there was a red weather warning for the first time ever for wind and rain. Because I got woken up at four o'clock in the morning by the wind hitting the window in uh, in my hotel room. What? The wind was that loud? It was so loud. It was deafeningly loud at about four o'clock in the morning on uh, on Friday. Did anyone in the hotel sleep? I highly doubt it. But I went out for um, for lunch on Friday afternoon with uh, with another friend of the the same group, and we were walking back down the like promenade to go back um, towards my hotel because she was going past to uh, to go back home. And the wind was that powerful that neither of us could walk. She nearly got blown away. She's obviously a lot smaller than I am because I'm not a, a small human being, but um, she could barely walk. And we actually ended up having to go the long way around because it was far, far too windy. Was uh, Yeah, I had a similar experience in Malta. What was that? A little over two months ago with the Maltese wind where I had to put all of my strength into walking or if I want to take a selfie from on top of the church on the Gozo Island. I had to use my other hand to keep it straight so I could take pictures. <laughs> I remember I went inside of one of the malls on Gozo during the windstorm, and there was a family who was eating at a table, and they chose to eat right by the door. 
So when I opened the door, a big gust of wind flew and their food went to the opposite side of the table. They were not happy with me. Understandable. I wouldn't be happy with you if you made me lose food either. But it's like, why would you choose the table closest to the door when it's 65 kilometer an hour winds outside? So that's the picture I showed my brother. I was there the day after that was taken. Let's see. Let's take a let's take a gander at this photo. <laughs> what? That's the that's the height of the waves. Yeah, that was the height of the waves during uh, during the storm on Friday. Um, the picture I've just sent Logan, if anyone knows Folkestone, is um, a picture near the uh, the sunny sands beach where the waves were the height of the cliff that you uh, you climbed the stairs to uh, to climb. That is extremely <laughs> dangerous. That's yeah. That's like tsunami. That's uh, if this if this if the winds were that high or that or the waves were that high in Phuket, that would wipe out a couple of blocks. Yeah, that was um, that was a very interesting day on Friday. It was it was really cool, but also it was terrifying to be woken up by howling winds on Thursday night, Friday morning, because it, you couldn't tell. On, on Thursday, like when I went to bed on Thursday, I really couldn't tell that it was gonna, the wind was gonna pick up that much. I'd got an email off, uh, off the train company saying, "Yeah, we're not doing any trains on Friday. It's too dangerous." But I didn't think it was going to affect the uh, the south coast as badly as it did. Oof, oof. So that's our weather update. <laughs> Yikes! And here I am complaining about a ten minute downpour every couple days in Phuket. <laughs> oh, Jesus. And as you saw the uh, the pictures, I did receive a uh, a new Munich Sea Idol from uh, from Jez and Alex, uh, which protects me from being thrown in the sea for being a condescending prick to them on their podcast, which I guested on on Friday. <laughs> what do they podcast about? So they do a weekly ranty podcast every week on uh, on live streamed on Twitch and then uh, put in audio form on uh, on the interwebs oh. called Don't Get Me Started. Oh, okay, but um. Because I was down there on uh, on Friday, I uh, I guested on it, and um, they do stuff like read out "Am I the Arseholes from Reddit?" and um, "Today I Fucked Ups," talk about the highs and lows of the weeks and that sort of stuff. Okay. So anyway, we're actually here to talk about Vidim. Yes, it's the final four. And eulogize my favorite character of the season, despite the fact that nobody has ever thought that he was suspicious. Poor, poor Thomas. I will skip ahead slightly and say one person did put Thomas as number one on the uh, on the first suspicions, and nobody else did. Thomas had a very low average score on the first suspicions. He definitely played this season as a contestant from the get go. Yeah, but he was very, very, very fun in doing that. Yeah, well, it's this, it's the equivalent to Lloyd in the Mobilia, uh Mexico season, where. He had no desire to act like the mole. He just wanted to get the pot as high as possible and relied on his own skills to be able to lock lock it down and win the game. Sometimes that strategy works out for you because then you win a much bigger pot. But then other times it means that everyone's going to rule you out as a suspect and it just decreases your odds of of, uh, of winning since it makes it easier. It makes it easier for everyone else to figure out who the mole is. And fortunately for Thomas, the latter is what happened to him. 
it's a risky strategy. Sometimes it pays off and sometimes it doesn't, which was the case this season. Do you like having people cast who are blatantly not the mole? As long as they don't occupy the whole cast, I think it's fine. Because you want, you want a diverse set of strategies all being implemented in the game. You don't want everyone to be a fanatic. You don't want everyone to just not care if money goes into the pot or not. You don't want everyone who is trying to act like the mole constantly and tilt the table so that no money is ever won. <laughs> I think you need the array of personalities because production can rotate between which type of person the mole would be for that season because that's the other layer to it too is that then you don't have the mole acting the same way every season because they're always casting the same personality type every season. No, it's the same argument that I always make against filling a cast on Survivor or Amazing Race with superfans because you need a bit of variety in the personality and if you have a cast full of the same types of people it gets very boring very quickly. Exactly. It just means that you can 100% rule Thomas out, without a doubt, straight away. Which for us is fun, because it makes our suspicions way easier. And also it means that Thomas really doesn't have to play a character that he is not, and he can just constantly go for money. If you think about it, the people who act the least like the mole tend to be the most entertaining, if not the funniest characters on the season. Yeah, because they're not playing a character. Like... Look back at Josh last year. He was never going to be the mole, but boy, was he fun. Yeah, I think that's that would probably be the... Yeah, and then, of course, Lloyd. Lloyd was the is perhaps the most fun character they've ever had in the Belgian version of the mole. Lloyd is so fun that Gilles couldn't get through a sentence when he was talking to us about Lloyd in the finale without laughing. That's true. Didn't he say it was the funniest moment he had up to that point in hosting the mole? Yeah, he said he had never laughed as hard at a moment on the mole as that. As Lloyd swinging and failing to swing over a canyon. I think it goes in with what Jill had said before to us, which is he wants to find a group of people that he can have fun with for three, three to four weeks. And in this case... You have somebody like Lloyd, or you have a Thomas. That's somebody who's always going to be the life of the group and is always going to be fun to have around. They're going to counter whatever negative, obsessive gameplay you'll have within the cast. Like, uh, who was the really intense player from Mexico? Uh, Jeffrey? Yeah, Jeffrey was very intense. Yeah, so if you have a Lloyd in the group, that can counter whatever negativity Jeffrey might bring to the group where everyone's thinking, oh... This is a bit too intense of a game for me to be playing. I still have Jeffrey's business card somewhere. He gave it me at uh, at the Vietnam finale. <laughs> Good old Jeffrey. Anyways, and one other thing I want to point out. Feels like we're going backwards in this episode, but I like how going into the quiz that Thomas and Frazia, they knew each other wasn't the mole. They both clearly have it down to everyone and Kim, which I think is the scenario that most of the audience is in right now, is it's either everyone or Kim. You'd be surprised for the answer to that question, but carry on. Yeah, correct. Are they... Do they have everyone at the bottom? The current standings as of last night when I was watching the episode are Frazier in number one at 36%, what? everyone at 32%, and Kim at 32%. Oh, so it's so very, it's... very even. 
So it's the exact opposite of what people think uh, in Baller's Bar, then. Yeah. I mean, you're convinced it's everyone. I'm convinced it's Kim, sadly. And the Dutch public con- is convinced it's Frasier. <laughs> this is fun. <laughs> but well, let's just pretend we're smarter than the Dutch public. And Thomas. Are you smarter than the Dutch public? <laughs> just don't have Kelly Pickler as a contestant. Budapest? I didn't even know that was a place. <laughs> um, I like how going into the, into the quiz, Thomas and Frazier had ruled each other out, and then they had this big dilemma of, do I split between, between Kim and everyone? Do I go all in on Kim? Do I go all in on everyone? And just count on my opponent either splitting or being wrong? What, what do I do? So I like how Thomas and Frazee just expected the other person was going to be executed that round. Yeah. Are you smarter than the Dutch public? That is the question. Oh, boy. I think we have an idea for a spin-off for this podcast. It's one versus 100 Dutchmen. Yeah, we, we get 100 random Dutch people on Zencaster and, um, and, and fire general knowledge questions. And it's deeply ironic because one versus 100 is a Dutch format. Oh, really? Yeah, it's an Endemol format. It was originally Dutch. How many reality shows came out of the Netherlands? They, they came out with Expedition Robinson. No, they didn't. The Mole? No? Sweden was Expedition oh, Robinson. Sweden. Belgium was uh, The Mole. And Big Brother. Yeah, Big Brother was Dutch. Yeah. I'll give you that one. But um, yes, a bunch. Two. <laughs> Two that we can think of. What, what about that Slim de Mens? Uh, De Slim's to Mens is, um, is Dutch, I think, as well. When I first, when you first uh, mentioned that show, I thought it was the Dutch version of Boys to Men. So I was expecting it to be an R and B group, but I was mistaken. The Traitors as well—that's the Dutch format. Oh, where it's a copy of Mafia. Yeah. So previously, Kim apparently had a premonition that they'd been working with sheep, which ended up badly for the team. They each went on boat trips to see Molly's and Millie's, but none of them actually saw the mole sneak past them. Thomas predicted that Letitia would have done worse on the test after a time penalty challenge, and he was correct, which sent her home. Uh, Matt Clemson on the Bothers Bar Discord, I don't think this really counts as a listener complaint of the week, but he suggested that maybe it was just a deliberate parody of, uh, of Where's Wally, mm-hmm. because the colour schemes are very similar. I don't know whether it actually is, though. Nobody has got in contact to say, this is the reference you're missing. Yeah. But that's the closest we've had to it. At least it had nothing to do with Pippi Longstocking this time. No, not this time. We've not accidentally stumbled Bass Ackwards into uh, into another correct fact. <laughs> so they are still in Girocaster. There is no Rick intro immediately for the first time in a long while. Apparently Frazier's face tells Kim to smile all the time, and Thomas laments the fact that his question mark advantage was not a fun advantage. And this is something I wanted to actually mention last week. Do you think that they should occasionally put in booby prizes for the question mark advantages when they pop up just to keep people on the toes and not immediately make people want to grab them. I think so, yeah. I think you got you have to you have to it's kinda of like the survivor auction, right? You want half of the items to be advantageous and the other half of the items to be disadvantageous. And then those rare ones where it's just a complete dilemma. Yeah, to be to be dirty river water. Yeah. <laughs> oh she yeah. Yeah, I I think you need the jeopardy of it for people. 
Yeah, so I think I think you need those items in there where the person thinks, oh, it's going to be something great, and then it's, oh, this can be great, but it's going to come at my personal expense. So everyone admits to the group that he got willed the mole phone. The rest of the group aren't happy that the treasurer also has the mole phone, so they settle on Thomas being given it. And given how clumsy he is, he will lose it, and they'll have an off day. Yeah, they would have to use those metal detectors by the end of the episode to find out where Thomas dropped the phone on the beach and reassemble the phone so it works again. So we then get the intro and Averon looking up at the sky during the family photo. And Rick tells us that there is only one more execution before the finalists are known. And we are specifically reminded of the 5,000 euro bounty that is on Averon's head. Yeah, he does a little summary for each person. He says, everyone has that $5,000 bounty. Frazia saved her exemption until the last possible moment. Kim has withheld money slash robbed money from the group. And Thomas is clumsy. That's the best they could come up with, Thomas, because nobody thinks Thomas is the mole. No, absolutely everyone knows that Thomas is not the mole. And the episode title for this week is Mole Catcher or Molen Van Hill. That was surprisingly good for you. <laughs> or, or if we want to go full on Anglophone on this, Molen Van Hill. Molen Van Hill. What are you going to do to her? I'm going to Molen Van I'm going to Molen Van right up. <laughs> The song is great. It's such a Molenvanger. So they then head to the centre of Girocaster on day 15 for the first challenge. Rick meets them in the middle of the town square. And all they've got to do to earn money is cover all of the streets of Girocaster with rugs. For every metre from the rug that he's standing on, they will earn 10 euros for the pot. And they have 45 minutes. I thought this was a bit insensitive to Thomas because he's bald and will likely need a rug if he wants to have a full head of hair. For the rest of his life? I am on record as hating this sort of a challenge. The ones where locals not necessarily get roped in, but just kind of get bullied into helping. Yeah, they have the cameras in their face. Yeah, there is no advantage to the locals of doing this challenge, and even helping them whatsoever, as we find out when they start taking rugs away afterwards. Yeah, the Albanians aren't known for being pushovers. If they don't like something, they're going to make it very clear to you. Having said that, I do have to um, point out that the challenge title for this one is probably my favourite one for him to have ever done, <laughs> Carpet which DM. is Carpet Diem. <laughs> it's such a good title for such a bad challenge. It's the best pun I think I've seen on a Vidim challenge, given it translates well to English. This is the sort of pun that absolutely they need to do more of, because... If they just want to play for my praise every single season, they will get it if they just keep doing silly puns like this and ones that I see come up on the screen and just laugh at. I will still criticise them for the fact that they still haven't corrected the pot money and that they still keep doing stupid things, but I love a pun and absolutely they are appealing to my sense of humour when they say carpet diem. And then Frazier says, who comes up with this? Who came up with this challenge? And then I'm thinking, ah... Whichever producer uh, wants to punish Albanian carpet shop owners. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how they they even thought that this was going to be a good idea. I, I think it's fine if you bring in locals to participate in a challenge or pose with photos, but when you make them have to give up possessions that they sell for their livelihood because Albania is quite a poor 
uh, European country. And you know that it's going to be used in a public space where the carpet's going to get ruined. And then that means, the, especially during COVID too, when not as many people are out and about. I mean, on paper, it seems like a fun idea. I don't think this challenge is planned with any maliciousness or a complete disregard of the locals. But I think they, if they just sat for 10 minutes, they could have thought, hmm, if I was a shop owner, would I just blindly think this is fun? Or I have been struggling financially. I live in a poor country. Why am I giving up all my personal items for everyone to potentially damage over a span of 45 minutes? And then I have to try and search amongst hundreds, if not thousands of rugs to figure out which one belongs to my shop rather than that jackass who I'm competing with down the street who I don't like at all, who sells more rugs than I do. It's the difference between something like this and something like the Georgia Bridge Challenge. The Georgia Bridge Challenge, yes, they were getting locals involved and all that sort of stuff, but it was actually for something good for them as well. Yeah, and it wasn't involving somebody's... I mean, borrowing a table is quite different than than the rug, because they're not selling the table, they're selling the rugs in the shop. And apparently some of the local shopkeepers were aware that this is going to be happening, but not necessarily all of them. Yeah. And that's not a good idea. You either get everyone involved or you get nobody involved. And I think actually it was Thomas who had a confessional saying that he wasn't a fan of this challenge. There's always someone who has a confessional like this in every season now of, oh, I really hate it when we have to get locals involved in these challenges. Diedrich's my favourite one of these, because he hated every single local theme challenge. But yeah, Thomas's confessional here is amazing. Yeah, he's like, well, I hate these challenges where you have to go up to locals and say, take off your clothes, do you have a rolling pin? Because we know about all those Albanian carpet shop owners who love, who love taking off their clothes and have an excessive amount of rolling pins laying around. Well, it's the two things that Girocast is known for. It's rugs and compulsory nudity. <laughs> Which brings a whole new, slightly awkward... Um, aspect of, you know, people lazing on all the rugs at uh, the end of this challenge. <laughs> Can I have your carpet? So everyone enjoys talking to the locals, and Thomas really doesn't. Uh, he hates challenges where you have to ask people to stand there, or for their hat, or to get naked, or to give them a rolling pen. Kim has to ask a local to move his displays as they need to cover the road from curb to curb. Uh, the locals come to take the rugs back because people start walking over them and they can't sell them then. And they settle on a tactic of then duping people by claiming that they are trying to set a world record. <laughs> Rick is representative from the Guinness Book of World Records. We are trying to set the record for the longest stretch of rugs laid out in the span of 45 minutes on a televised Dutch reality show. We're trying to beat the record set by Turkmenistan. I don't think they should be allowed to lie to the locals, really, with this sort of stuff. Well, imagine if you're Dutch and you go to Albania and you go to Girocaster and then everyone says, oh, are you going to lie to me like the Dutch the Dutch citizens lied to us when they were filming that reality show? Get the hell out of my carpet shop. It's just a little bit disingenuous, and I'm fully aware that I'm saying this about a program that is entirely built on the aspects of sabotage, but it's a little bit disingenuous to mess around with people who aren't involved in the show. Well, when it more so when it involves their personal business. I know we're not the only people to have a little bit of a problem with this challenge, but it doesn't entirely sit well with me. Is this a challenge where they played the song from Aladdin? Because I was thinking, why was there an Aladdin song playing? Actually, let me just control F my notes to 
find where I mentioned Aladdin. Oh no, it's uh, it's uh, right before the the shipping container challenge. That's when the Aladdin music plays. So I was thinking, oh, maybe because there's a they ride on a magic carpet in a whole new world. But no, that comes up two challenges later, so that's not the case. It goes from a whole new world to between two worlds. So Thomas comes back with a pile of rugs, mainly thanks to Everon. The shopkeepers start being reluctant to help them. They settle on doing two streets right rather than spreading over all five. People start taking selfies and getting in the way. And Thomas says he's keeping an eye on Everon to make sure that he isn't molding. And Pepsi gets a free sponsor when Thomas goes into one of the shops. Pepsi, the Pepsi machine is prominently shown. Albania is more of a Pepsi place than a Coke place. Yeah, maybe Soda Popinski from Punch-Out was actually from Albania instead of Russia, for all we know. And they end up getting 44.5 metres of carpet, which means €445 Euros for the pot. And by that logic, that means that they probably could have ended up having a weird amount of money for the pot. Again. Did they round up? Did they go up to 450 no, it's 445, because they can actually fulfill that in the notes. Because oh. they have 10s and 25s. So they can fulfill that. But if they'd got, say, 415, they wouldn't have been able to do that. They would have had to round up to 420. And uh, I like how everyone just piled the rugs on top of Thomas to the point that his face was completely buried in rugs. <laughs> I was this close to making Thomas the banner this week, because he has a brilliant confessional at the, uh, at the Ship and Container Challenge, but I mean, we'll get to it, but Rick sat in that cafe just made me laugh far too much. <laughs> and I noticed everyone doing a couple of suspicious things where initially at the start of the challenge, he's talking to one of the shop owners for way too long before getting to the point. Uh, it seemed like he was standing around and doing nothing at times while everyone else was working hard. And he stopped to admire different rugs extensively, maybe more so than Kim did during this challenge. And I just don't think everyone really contributed a whole lot. He was definitely an observer. I will say, if Averon is the mole, I am absolutely screwed on first suspicions. <laughs> because we will get to this, but you are by far and away ahead, but only because I put Averon in 10th. If Kim and Fraser end up being the final two, then I have a very decent chance of first suspicions of doing rather well. Not so much if... Averon ends up being in the final two and or the mole. So Rick also tells them that it's their last night in Jericasta. Tomorrow they will be heading to their final destination city of Tirana. Not that they know that the unmasking will be taking place in Tirana, but we know it will. I went to Tirana. Did you? That's a shock. Do you remember what happened to me in Tirana? I do not. So when I was in Tirana, I only stayed there for the one night, I think. Yeah. I don't think I was even there for 24 hours. So I get into Tirana early afternoon, and I check in, and the receptionist says, Oh, by the way, the biggest protest that I can remember in Albania's history is going to happen in the town square at 7 p.m. So you might want to stay clear of that. So naturally, I'm thinking, well, maybe I'll go a little just before 7, and then if things escalate, I'll, I'll get out of there. I go there, and there's several different groups all huddled together in the town square. And I'm thinking, oh, this seems peaceful. Uh, receptionist was just being overdramatic. 
and then firecrackers and what I hope were firecrackers started going off and then you could look into the streets and see different groups marching from different directions and a lot more police coming out and the explosions were getting louder and louder really loud and then I exited the town square thinking oh I've never been in a situation like this before I think I should get out of here so I started walking but one of the marching groups is following. It felt like they were following me. So the noises were getting louder and louder, and I'm trying to walk faster and faster. Because I'm thinking, how can they be taking the exact same path as me? Isn't the square back there? That's the main square. So eventually, whatever route they were doing diverted from where, where I was. And then I go into, uh, I think it was a cafe, and I get a beer. It was, it was one of the best beers I've ever had in my life, and I'm not much of a beer drinker. And on the TV, they're playing the protests are going on in the square. And I'm thinking, that's what's going to appear on international news and it's going to freak out everyone who I personally know that knows I'm in Toronto right now. This is going to make international news. Even though two blocks away, it's completely peaceful. You'd have no idea there's a protest going on because I'm just sipping a cold beer two blocks away while all hell is breaking loose. And then I get back to my hotel and there were two guys from Sweden, I guess, who, who came back to the hostel. And they said, yeah, we hung around a bit too long at the protests. And then the pepper spray came out and we accidentally got pepper sprayed. And I'm thinking, I am glad I left before the, the deployment of pepper spray. That is a life lesson. Always leave before the pepper spray comes out. Yeah. And the other life lesson is uh, you can scare anybody into going into any city around the world. If you just show where the where the action or where the very precise protest is happening, because two blocks away, it can be completely peaceful and people are just going about their day as if nothing is wrong. So apparently during the bus rides, Kim does tarot readings. This, this is so Kim. Yeah, it's so Kim. We get to see an extended scene of this with Thomas drawing the Between Two Worlds card. Everyone gets time for a nap. Kim gets serendipity. And all I have to say is this scene would be interesting if it wasn't complete bullshit. You think it's another hidden clue? <sighs> There'll, it'll be something. There'll be a hidden tarot card somewhere in one of the episodes. Pardon me, this is when the Aladdin music plays. And then uh, I was thinking maybe she's just a really big John Cusack fan. Well, apparently they're not even real tarot cards. They're just ones she hand-drew? No, I, th- I think it was Matt Clemson again on the Bob's Bar Discord actually found the correct quote-unquote tarot cards that they were and they are not the ones that they're not real ones well i think depending on who you ask there's no such thing as real tarot cards well yeah they're they're inherently bullshit but um they're not the the standard tarot cards and then she talks about how she has the flow four leaf clover and it's going to bring her happiness and then everyone's card that it's time for a nap makes me crack up so much (laughs) And then Kim says, well, all that mulling is what makes you tired. And then the mull phone rings, I believe, while they're in the van. And they and they all say, oh, Rick, did you sleep well last night? Well, the, the tarot card scene is on the way to Tirana, and then they wake up on day 16 in Tirana for the breakfast, where uh, Frazier says that in larger groups she would have dropped truth bombs just to cause a bit of fun. Yes. They're all hoping that four people will make it to the finale. That is not to be the case. Yeah, it's kind of funny near the end of the game where even though it's the most intense because you're about to decide the winner, 
everyone seems also a bit more relaxed in terms of how they interact with each other because everyone is locked in who they think the mole is. Of course, that's not the case every season since the most recent season of the mole we covered, the exact opposite <laughs> happened leading into the finale. But but here everyone is saying, eh, there's no real reason to really screw with each other now. Let's just have breakfast and enjoy it. Let's take a bit of time outside of the game before we start messing with each other again. Yeah, where, the, where you don't have to play the game at breakfast. You can wait till the challenges themselves. Overall, mole etiquette dictates there can't be individual advantages or exemptions in play today. Unless there's a challenge to win them. Yeah, they seem to get the feeling there's, there's not going to be too crazy of an individual twist for this round. Given what they experienced the last round, where there were, what, two out of three challenges were based on individual rewards? So, yep, as you said, the phone does ring us there on the way to the second assignment. It is a butt dial from Rick, and he says that he needs two candidates who aren't scared of heights, but can set questions, and two who want to keep their feet on the ground and answer questions. And Kim and Frazier go high, and Thomas and Averon low. They then meet Rick as a group in the Port of Duress. They are now in high vis, and behind him are 18 containers with name combinations on them. Kim and Frazier will be in a crane and have questions about their adventures. They have to relay them to uh, Thomas and everyone who will find the containers with the correct answers and instruct a forklift driver to move the wrong ones. If they do it correctly, only one container will be left, and that contains 1,500 euros. Kim and Frazier have laptops which display the questions, sometimes in complete sentences, sometimes in half sentences. Frazier and Kim are on top, Thomas and everyone are on the bottom. Just like in the season. Winner and mole, loser and false place. Not biting on that? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm disappointed in you. I was hoping to troll you a little bit there, but evidently not. Evidently you're not playing. So the first question is, who started the time clock challenge in the church? And that was Thomas Healer and Averon. The next question is, who a doubler was thrown to from the paragliding? It was Thomas and Letitia. Then the third one is, who was in the Trump group in the very first challenge? And that was Arno Healer, Thomas, Susanna, Vilmud, and Letitia. The fourth one is apparently Frazier, Kim, Thomas, Arno, and Sahil, but we're not told what the question is, because they don't relay the question, even though they're meant to let the boys answer them. They are asked who got Yokers in the exemption route challenge, and that was only Thomas, much to Averon's disgust. And then who started in the water in the slingshot challenge? That was Arno, Frazier, Healer, Sahil, Velmud, and Kim. What's interesting is they overrode any suggestions or answers that everyone had during the challenge. Thomas and Frazia weren't in the same group for this challenge and clearly trusted each other. They, they trusted each other's judgment as if they have completely ruled out each other as the mole throughout this challenge. And then anytime everyone said anything, they're like, nope, nope, we're not going to do that. Yeah, as we found out at the end of this episode, the fact of the matter is Thomas and Frazia both know that each other aren't the mole. So it then becomes a, are we working together and trying to work out which of these bastards it is? Yeah, because if they suspected each other, they would want to be in the same group for this challenge. So the fact that they're, in, they're not in the same pair and they're listening to each other and ignoring, ignoring one, if not both, of Kim and everyone during this challenge, that, that, that should tell you a lot. So the only other question that we see is who did the light photo for Arno? And they think that it's Thomas, but it was actually Fraser, as we see. 
All the questions run out, and they still have five containers left on the board. Time runs out as Thomas is on his way to remove a container. They have a dilemma. They can chat amongst themselves or ask Kim and Frazier for help. If they ask Kim and Frazier, Rick will halve the money if they find it. And they specifically go for the container that Kim told them that she had a bad feeling about, and it is an empty one. Now that is an interesting moment for the challenge, where it's a lot of psychology in play, where everyone is suspecting Kim. So they're thinking, hmm, if Kim has a bad feeling about that specific container, does that mean we should go for it? Or does she know that we know we're onto her and it's, and it's reverse psychology? Where would you prefer to be as a mole in this challenge? I feel like you could do more damage from the from the bottom because no one can really account because Thomas and everyone were were in two separate forklifts, right? Yeah, yeah. So you're completely unattended. That's what I was thinking going into the challenge of hmm, Brazia and Kim can keep tabs on each other. So and especially when there's so few people left to suspect for being the mole, you're really going to be under the microscope there. But if you're in the forklifts. You can just pick any container you want and say, oh, I'm going to grab this one, or there's no one you really have to report to. I think it's easier to sabotage from the top, but I think there's probably more sabotage opportunity from the bottom. Are you saying it's easier to sabotage from the top because the person can just bank on the other person not seeing what's on their laptop and or, or let the other person start the question and then finish the question with the wrong details? If it is Kim... I reckon her tactic on this challenge would have been something along the lines of deliberately mismatch a pair or just rely on the fact that Frazier doesn't remember which six people were in a particular group or anything like that. And not correct her. Yeah, it's so much easier to just let the other person up in the top give an incorrect answer than it is to to get rid of a uh, a container and risk getting caught. It's very interesting that they got to do the questions and answer the questions. I kind of wish that Averon and Kim were together, just so we knew which group the sabotage was going to come from, being honest about it. Uh, but I'm very intrigued that they were, I guess Thomas and everyone just suspect Kim so much to the point of, hmm, Let's just take a chance here and hope that she was intentionally trying to mislead us about the container. Because I think if there was a bit more mystery as to Frazia being a suspect, then I think they would have said, oh, well, let's just hear them out. Let's hear the other questions and let's have the money and let's get more information and then make make our decision. So Rick tells us that they have one more challenge in Duress before returning to Tirana. That challenge on Duress's beach could see what the mole likes to keep underground be revealed. He tells the candidates that they have to meet him in a cafe in half an hour to earn 500 euros each. To do so, they have to build a scooter, the parts of which are buried in the sand. If they arrive without a scooter, then they are worth zero euros, but if they are late, they are worth minus 500 euros. And to help, they have metal detectors. And I've said this before on podcasts, watching people do metal detecting, super fun television. However... It's a bit more of a fun version of this because Thomas has to politely ask people to move and everyone is a bit more aggressive with trying to get people to move and Frazier has to jump in and say, you're ruining their vacation. They're just innocent people. We can take their rugs from their business, but we can't ruin them. We can't ruin their holiday. 
this challenge is just a mess. Let's be perfectly clear. It's a mess all around. We don't see metal detectors too often on Vidim. Celebrity Mall Hawaii, I can recall, with Eric needing to collect coins for the Cabana Boy. Yeah, the problem is metal detecting is inherently super boring. Unless you have something fun like them having to harass tourists to move away from the sun loungers, which are the things setting off the metal detectors. Or Kim blagging a spade from a child. (laughs) Or Kim getting very frustrated that she... It's one of the rare times we see a flashback on Venom where Kim's digging, trying to dig, and she says, oh, I'm having bad memories here. And then we see Kim Kim stabbing the earth uh, during the doubler challenge. <laughs> she was she was just, I forgot, she was just like Adam West declaring an eye for an eye from the sea. Take that, you murderous sea. You won't be bothering anyone anymore. So Thomas picks up a lot of sun loungers. Frazier finds the first piece. It's not very, very deep, but it is cling-filmed. And then Averon harasses a woman whose sun lounger is over a hole, he thinks, and it contains nothing. And Kim and Averon find a package of handles. Kim starts putting it together, but needs a front wheel. Rick, genuinely, after they joked about it, has got the gin and tonics in at the cafe, which was a wonderful touch from production, I have to say. Best case scenario, they all join him for drinks. Worst case scenario, he's drinking all five. And um, this is also where our banner for this week comes from, with Rick looking longingly out to the water, just waiting for people to actually join him, giving a slight Papa Bear Gilles de Costa vibes in that uh, in that moment. Because I could see this sort of a challenge being on Belkia. There should be a time where they film both franchises at the same time in the same place, and Jill and Rick are uh, are waiting for the contestants at the same cafe. And then they're both just sitting alone, having their drink, and then they recognize one another, and then they become really good friends. Yeah, the problem is that, I mean, obviously it would be amazing, but there's little things like the fact that Venom has physical money and Belkia doesn't. So if it was a competition between the two teams, for example, which you would assume it probably would be, then uh, you'd either have Rick handing out money or Papa Bear just going, yeah, you've got your money now, have fun. It's bit in Bitcoin now. So Kim and Frazier find another scooter, but it's not got a wheel or handlebars. And then Kim, everyone, and Frazier find a third scooter. They decide as a group that once one is built, they will take it and everyone else will run. And that happens with five minutes to go. Thomas takes off to find the cafe, as do Fraser and Averon. Kim scoots and makes it with about two minutes to spare. Rick confirms that they were on time, meaning they earned 500 euros of 2,000 for the challenge, 945 euros of 6,000 for the episode, and 13,140 of 53,540 for the season so far, plus 250 euros that Kim hoarded. And that is now 10 euros off of China's total, including Kim's hoarded money, and 120 euros above Dominican Republic without Kim's hoarded money. And I also have to point out for the third week on the charts that the pot graphic is still €100 Euros short. Wah, wah, wah. I will keep mentioning that until they actually fix it, which will be probably never. And Rick also tells them that the next day they will do their test, and that will be back in Tirana. It is now time for the test. 20 questions on the identity and actions of the mole, who have knows least goes home except for the mole who can never go home. The other three remaining people will be our finalists. Kim is ready, she's seen a lot and has a lot written down. She's only betting on one person now, and is hoping that the other candidates are wrong or spreading more than she is. Thomas says the only one who he doesn't suspect is Frazier. He thinks that they are both spreading on who the mole is. 
He's leaning towards spreading on both Kim and Averon, just to be safe in case someone picks a wrong mole. Frazier says if you spread and someone is still wrong, you'll go through to the finale, but it's come to the point where you can't spread and have to let the chips fall where they lie. Averon says he's going 100% Kim, especially after the container challenge. That is where a mole should have been. Five questions were missing, which is crazy. The execution happens in the Bloku district, formerly only available to the communist elite. Now it's a party district, a party district which the final three will be exploring. Averon, Kim and Frazier all get green screens, leaving Thomas as the final person executed this season. And in a wonderfully Thomas moment, he tells them that they have to stay sad while he walks away, and then they can actually celebrate, which they do. <laughs> He's not even outside of earshot when they celebrate. No, he tells them they're allowed to at that point. He says, right now you can. And I should note, right before the execution, I wrote down, I think Frazier is executed. Ah, oh, it's the first time this season you got it wrong, isn't it? Yeah, because I think, I think they left out Frazier and Thomas's uh, suspicions, I believe. Uh, Kim's suspicion wasn't on there either. Yeah, that's right. Kim didn't specifically say she suspected Averon in the test segment, but she did earlier. Thomas says he's spreading on Kim and Averon. Frazier doesn't give us any suspicions, but she said last week she suspects Kim. And Averon says he's going 100% Kim. So Thomas made the mistake where once you get final five or further, you can't spread anymore. It's also worth pointing out that given we speculated earlier in the season, every single episode has had an execution. There have been no non-elimination episodes this season for the first time in any Vidim season we've covered. And I have just quickly looked at the stats. It's actually the first time since season two that someone has gone home in every single episode. I like this much better. <laughs> so do I. I've mentioned this with Belkia before. I much prefer there being consequences to every single test. Yeah, I just like it being a single boot per episode. Clearly, there's an, this season demonstrated there's enough twists you can do to not justify any silly non-eliminations, double executions, a final four at the end. You can do one elimination per week and just do exemption twists or or pass with the vrace jellings, the, the pass dragon. I'm sure we will mention this a lot more next week and the week after probably, depending on how much I want to talk about it next week rather than the week after because, you know, I'm going away that week. But... I much prefer a season structure where there are consequences to every single test. You can definitely have the occasional non-elimination, as Belkia has proven, but you can't make that the concrete rule every single season. I like them having 11 people in the cast this season and having to do an elimination every single week. I don't like them forcing themselves to have a non-elimination every single season because, as we said with the Georgia podcast, you can tell when they want it to happen and if it doesn't happen, they get increasingly more desperate. It's not the amazing race. You don't need non-elimination episodes on them all. No. It's become a tradition in, in uh, Vidum, but you don't need it to happen. It's just, uh, I find it really disrupts the pace if you have non-eliminations on them all. As Bill here does. It's, it's good to use every other season or every three seasons or so where you do something funky that really catches the contestants off guard and has a bit of shock value to it. But when you do it every single season, contestants know when to look out for it and it doesn't catch anyone off guard anymore. 
In fact, with this season, it catches people off guard that there aren't any non-eliminations. That's the twist. <laughs> yeah, I think it peaks with China having three of them, including at Final Four. Yeah. It was just pointless. Uh, so Thomas says that he's at peace with going out. He thought he'd have gone about four or five episodes ago, as did we. He loved getting intimate with the other candidates, which I'm pretty sure is not allowed on broadcast television. And I also like how in the credits we see that the episode was sponsored by a metal detector company. Uh, I didn't notice that. Yeah, it's always worth paying attention to the uh, We Give Thanks section of the uh, of the credits as they scroll along the screen, because you usually see some fun places like where they've stayed in hotels and stuff. But yeah, this week there was a metal detector company credited. I guess you can find sponsors from anywhere. So next time, Fraser is led through a house break-in, there is a supermarket laser game, and the finalists discover a black light. Do you want to eulogise Thomas? Uh, didn't we already eulogise him at the start? <laughs> yeah. Have you got anything more you want to say about Thomas before we talk about the final three? Uh, I think he should be introduced to Seth MacFarlane, because him and Seth MacFarlane both seem to be a fan of show tunes. Fun contestant which is rare for the demographic that Thomas was fulfilling this season. We don't say that too often about the older male contestant. No, his demographic was the the Remco from last season, and inexplicably he managed to make it to Final Four and very much earn his spot in the Final Four just being very entertaining. It's interesting to see that he, he fell for the trap of splitting on the Final Four quiz. Because for the most part, everyone this season knew how many people to suspect each round and when to and when to drop their number of suspects. It shows you just how confused he was where he's like, uh, I guess I'll split between two and just gamble that one of the other two is going to go all in on the wrong person. I think he was relying on the fact that that a big suspect would go home if he didn't this week. Like if, if Kim or Averon had gone home, then he would. Then his tactic would have been perfect because he knew who to suspect next week, and he could have then gone through his notes, remembered everything, and probably got forty out of forty on the final test. As it happens, he played that badly, but I don't necessarily begrudge him when he was in a final four with three potentially very suspicious people. Yeah, it's just it's just too risky to do that final four. You just got to pick that one person. Oh, I don't disagree. But from his point of view, if you're in a final four with three very suspicious people. I don't necessarily begrudge him for going, well, I'm pretty sure it's not one of them. Yeah, it's not It's not the worst strategy. At least he didn't split between three people. But when you, I guess just historically speaking, splitting at Final Four seems like a reasonable strategy where you think, oh, someone else is going to just go all in on the wrong person and go home instead of me, and then I win the, I win the game. I skate, I skate through it like Bradbury. <laughs> but more often than not, than not it doesn't quite work out it's just it's it's a it's a matter of probability there was a brilliant comment from uh, our good friend marika about the final three that i wanted to bring up um on the bellas bar discord and she said for me there's a scenario i'd be quite happy with myself and the series a scenario i'd be surprised and a scenario i'd be rightfully pissed off if it's kim i'll be furious she would have either not understood what being the mole is or she's just too stupid there's no way you can keep 250 euros out of the pot as a mole so early on and constantly thrive off being found suspicious and just talking about the assignment as a feeling when you damn well know what you'll do because you're the mole. Shame on the producers if they let this happen. But I hope I can be happy. Averon is my mole for sure. The way he ran over that beach this episode pretending to work so hard, sweat so much without actually not doing much beside ordering Kim around and digging at the slice of feet is a typical mole move. 
I'd be surprised if it's Frazier. I love Frazier. I think she's awesome and I hope she was the mole. So I started noticing some of the stuff like not winning everything all the time and losing bits of money at a lot of the assignments. But she's really done too many things right for me to be the mole. So big surprise if it's her and I'd need to see her mole actions to be satisfied. I think that's a really good summary. Yeah. And that's kind of why I don't particularly want to talk about the final three because Marika's done it far better than I would. (laughs) (laughs) Are we both going to be replaced by Marika on this podcast? (laughs) Yeah, that's next season. I am very much on the It's Probably Kim train. However, I would 100% love to be wrong. If it's either Frazier or Avron, I will be far more satisfied than if I'm right this season, which is something I cannot say very often. Well, one thing I noticed uh, during the male detector challenge is that everyone was unaccounted for far, far too frequently during the challenge. I feel like no one was really keeping a close enough eye on him, and that's why I think they... It's par- partially the reason why they didn't earn as much money as they could. As a mole in that metal detector challenge, you probably just want to sneak off, find a piece, and throw it in the ocean. Yeah, it's like a survivor Gabon hitting the Muni Idol. So in our pool, you have Averon left, and Michelle has Fraser and Kim. In First Suspicions, Liam is the only person who put Thomas as number one. Christopher, Jack, and Femke had him at number two. And Tessa, Holger, Brian, Matt, and Kim all had Thomas at number ten. And both you and Michelle had him at number nine. Holger has raced into the lead with a score of six, which is the absolute minimum possible. His top three are the top three of the season, which is very impressive regardless of what happens. You are very much in the lead out of the three of us with nine points, and then me and Michelle both tied at 16. Only four people in our first suspicions currently have a score below 10. Kim is on 1.76 out of three, with Fraser on 2.06 and Averon on 2.18. Kim jumps up to 1.75, including the three of us. Frazier jumps to 2.05, and Averon drops to 2.2. As I said earlier, Frazier is 36% suspected by the Netherlands, up 6% from last week. Averon is on 32, plus 9, and Kim is on 32, minus 3. You obviously still suspect Averon, I still suspect Kim. Have you got anything else you want to say? Did I miss something earlier from the season? Because everyone referred to Thomas as Toto during this episode. Well, the thing is, as we've proven with the executions, it's going to take a lot to drag him away from us. There's nothing that a hundred men or more could ever do. Uh, maybe Arnold. Maybe Thomas is going off to Emerald City, or oh, oh, because maybe he was he was he was the one that was born in the Congo, right? He was. Maybe when he was born, his parents blessed the rain down in Africa. Yeah, he's a sad loss of the season, not an unexpected loss of the season, sadly. I think had I had to predict the final three halfway through this season, I would have probably predicted some combination of Frazier, Averon, Kim and Letitia. So the fact that they were four of the final five and, you know, I would have got the final three probably pretty much spot on says a lot about the editing this season, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else you want to say before I wrap up? No. After, after that extreme amount of silence. <laughs> no, I think we I think we covered all of it. Next week will be the big one, I suspect. With a bit of luck we'll uh, we'll know who who our winner and mole are gonna be next week. Yeah, I hope I'm hoping we get one more execution. Well last year we did have Charlotte being eliminated before um, before the reveal. I don't know whether they're going to do that this season with it being um, the unmasking party. 
in Renaissance, they gave they they said what each of the three weren't. What were the one one out of the three? They narrowed it down to either this or this, here this or this, here this or this. Yeah, they they have done that in the past, but let's be honest. I would like them to say, Avron, you're not the winner and you're not the mole. No, I don't want them to do that. That's the thing, you are our last hope now of Michelle not winning two on the bounce. As much as I hate to root for you in anything, I can't have Michelle win twice on the trot. It's just not fun. Just once I'd like to win a Vidum pool since we started. She'll be insufferable. You got your Rowan. Oh yeah, I did. Well, I'm not proud of it. Yeah, as as much as neither of us are happy about that season even happening. We've all won one since we've been doing the pools, and it's between you and Michelle to who's going to get the second crown. So, thank you for listening to our VS Tomorrow 2022 recap. We'll be back next week to continue the hunt for the new small in Albania. Don't forget to contact us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, where we are RTV Warriors. Or you can email us and contact at rtvwarriors.com. Logan is on Twitter at LogSuperQuacky, and I'm MJ Harmstone. Thank you as always to Marika for the subtitles. We'll see you next week to hopefully discover who our loser is. Peace out and just chill till the next of flavoring. Trust. 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 Trust.